0: Welcome to the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Mike Gagneau. I'm Senior Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality at ASHP. And joining me for today's episodes were Dr. Kathy Yang, Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacist at UCSF San Francisco Medical Center, and Dr. Monica Mahoney, Outpatient Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacy Specialist, as we talk about COVID-19 prevention and management in immune-compromised population. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mike.
1: Glad to have you both on. It's good to talk to you again after our meeting in Phoenix. And this is actually a novel format where we're going to be following up our summer meeting presentation with relevant updates to the material that we discussed there in Phoenix. And there's also a living handout from the meeting that is that has some of these same updates on the topics. And you'll be able to find that in the ASHP Learning Management System at elearning.ashp.org. All right, well, let's dive in. There's been a lot of new information since June. And I think probably the most significant update has been in the world of vaccines and boosters. So, Kathy, what have you been seeing as far as the news with with new vaccines, new authorizations, changes in age ranges, bivalent boosters? What's going on? Wow, that's a mouthful.
0: So, we've definitely seen a lot more uptake of the new booster vaccine. So, this is the bivalent vaccine for BA four and BA five, specifically for the Omicron variant. The new things I think that is most important for our immune compromised patients is the fact that. Now you can get the the new va- the the bivalent vaccine two months after whatever it is that you got is your last vaccine. So it doesn't really matter if it was primary series, you're a third dose, you're a primary booster. It doesn't matter whatever you got before. You sort of start the clock over and you say two months um, since that dose, you get the bivalent booster. Makes it nice and
1: easy. It does make it easy. I think people were getting a little confused with. What boosters are available for the immunocompromised? You know, what was available if you were over the age of, was it 50 or 65, where you were eligible for an additional booster? I think it was 50. So now it's a kind of a clean restart. And it's interesting, the older boosters are no longer authorized. So if you, you kind of reset and everyone just gets one, like you said, after two months. That's right. So it, it makes it easier, I think.
2: It makes it easier, but I think it also brings in a layer of complexity. If you're stocking both of the vaccines in your clinics- The Pfizer monovalent and the bivalent ones currently look very, very, very similar. So there's always a concern for mix-up and giving the wrong vaccine. So that's something that clinics have to be cognizant and cautious about. And there's been a lot of discussion, including on the ASHP boards, just how are you separating these? How are you making sure that there are no errors that happen?
1: That's a really good point. And we know that, you know, while they're the older versions of the vaccines aren't authorized for boosters. They're the only ones authorized for the primary series. So if anyone is still, you know, behind on their immunizations and hasn't started yet, you do have to keep both on your shelves. And there have been errors already, even leading up to this, with the, the various formulations. So that's a really good point and people need to to keep an eye out for that.
0: I think the other thing to also think about is with the primary series, you know, we had talked a lot about heterologous versus um homologous uh, vaccines, So do you get the same one? Do you mix them up? And so that recommendation always felt like it was changing. Is it better to get mixed vaccines or is it not? And now with the new booster, they we basically said it doesn't really matter. So, get whatever is available. So if you had Pfizer as your primary series, you can get Moderna or Pfizer. And actually my mother who went and got her bivalent booster kind of had a freak out about this because she always got Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer. And then all of a sudden she showed up at the clinic and they were only, they only had Moderna and she wigged out and she said, no, no, no. I I had Pfizer. I shouldn't get Moderna, and she actually called me, and I said, "No, it's okay." And she just didn't believe me; she thought it was a mistake. But now we can just mix and match if you're doing the bivalent booster.
2: Well, Kathy, you can tell your mom that I did the same thing. I didn't freak out, but I switched. I finally got my different brand to see what they do, and hopefully, it's working.
0: And actually, when I got mine, I was a Moderna all the way, and they only had Moderna, so I ended up sticking with the same one.
1: You know, I did the same thing, and. I have no idea if there's any clinical relevance, but I looked at the dosage and I thought, you know, the Moderna is higher. Maybe it's going to boost my antibodies more. (laughs) I don't know. And then of course, like two or three weeks after getting my booster, I get COVID. Now I should preface that with, I should preface that with, I was in Spain at the FIP meeting and who knows what variant or subvariant I was exposed to in, you know, meeting international travelers. So I would not put that on the vaccine as a, you know, as a failure of the booster, it's, we had the, 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 wild type and the BA4, BA5 subvariant within that booster. And, you know, there are some really interesting subvariants floating around Europe right now. So I'm going to choose to believe that I got one of those. That's why the vaccine <laughs> didn't, didn't protect me. <laughs> but I also feel like now I have super immunity, right? Because uh, that's, that's actually right, one that's of the, right. one of the things we know is that COVID plus the vaccine seem to provide the most protection moving forward so absolutely one other major update and then we'll move on from vaccines but novavax was authorized i believe in july and uh there's been an update or two to that eua are you either of you seeing anything with uh with novavax uh demand or use
0: We haven't. I think probably because Novavax was a late player in the game. Um, By the time it came out, you know, our immune-compromised patients were already getting the mRNA vaccine. So we have not used a lot of Novavax. I would say it's mainly used in a population that that was a little adverse to the mRNA vaccine for ever reasons, uh, personal reasons, or if they had any type of contraindication to the mRNA vaccine, they were the ones to get the Novavax. What about you, Monica?
2: Same. We added it to our formulary, but um, we actually did not include it in our standing order just because similarly, we anticipated that the demand for it was going to be low. So, we determined to have it available for those who needed it, but it would be by a prescriber or clinician Ordering it for their patient because uh, similar to what Kathy was saying, a lot of our immunocompromised patients they they were the first ones to get vaccinated and they were the ones that were asking for the vaccinations. So instead, we're seeing them come back for their bivalent boosters now.
1: Interesting, and we'll keep an eye on you know any developments with the vaccines and uh, particularly in the immune compromised patients. I don't know that there's anything that's that's changed substantially other than the the boosters and the eligibility for an additional shot. But if there's anything, we'll uh, we'll update the information as we go through um, this sort of innovative series of podcasts and living handout. All right, well, let's move on. I, I kind of alluded to the emerging variants uh, that I've seen in Europe, but what's happening here in the U.S.? Um, obviously, there has been a major update to the Envishald, uh EUA. What are you seeing on the front lines with with the emerging variants and what they mean for therapeutics?
0: Yeah. So with Evusheld, um, a couple of big updates. So the FDA did, they made two major changes. One is they did update the EUA to say that there was likely going to be reduced activity against some of these emerging variants. And the ones that were most concerning was the BA 4.6. And then there is this new variant that is sort of on the rise. I believe it's called BF7. They share the same sort of mutation, which makes Evusheld work not so well. At the moment, if you look at NowCast, it's different for every region, but it's about hovering between somewhere between 15 and 20% across the country for the, the combined of these two variants. So it's just something we're going to have to keep an eye on. We don't know really what the threshold will be for pulling the plug on Evusheld. I think the good news is because this is uh, prophylaxis and not treatment, um, we can we can be a little bit more aggressive in terms of using it because it's not like we're using it for someone who's actively infected. If that was the case, we would still move on to one of the antivirals or a bebtelovimab. So that's the good news. We're still able to use it for now. So that is the main update. So that that's something that we need to include in some of our counseling with our patients. So this is not the Ultimate protection, you know, there is still potential for breakthrough. And if you have a breakthrough, you do what you would normally do and you would go to your test to treat sites, you'd get Paxilvid, you'd get Beptilobamad, or if you needed to get Remdesivir. Oh, and then there was one other big, sorry, there was one other big update that I forgot to mention. And that is actually, um, it, it was a big update from the FDA perspective, but interestingly, it was not an, a big update for us where they updated the definition of immune compromise. So they basically put in the EUA a little statement that um, these, this is the list of immune compromising conditions, but not limited to. And even though that sounds like it would be intuitive, um, the FDA did this because there were reports that um, some centers were not giving Ebushel because the exact immune compromising condition was not listed in the EUA. But this now gives you the wild card to give you a little bit more of provider discretion of what you consider immune compromised. So that was the other big update.
1: Yeah, and I think that was an important one um, for, because as you noted, there was a there was a little slower uptake, I think, depending on what the immune compromised condition may have been. Um, and as we know, there there is plenty of uh, heavy shell to go around right now. Um, what I think will be interesting to watch is you know some of these mutations that um, allow the immune escape, or that, that would prevent antibody shell from from working, may not be a competitive advantage as far as um, how easily the the variant spread. And we, we saw this earlier with um, beta and gamma being outcompeted by delta. And so we, you know, those two were pretty resistant to some of the earlier monoclonal antibodies. And then when delta emerged as outcompeting the others, it didn't have that escape. Mutation and so we got some of our monoclonals back. So it'll be really interesting to follow these subvariants and see is shelled, You know, if it turns out that BA four point six or something else takes over that is resistant, does that eventually become you know something else outcompete that that reverses that mutation? Uh, so just because it's it's resistant now doesn't mean it will be moving forward.
0: That's right, and. And actually, you know, when Omicron first hit, that took off so fast it was, you know, it had outcompeted everything within a few weeks. But this, these two variants don't seem to be moving quite as quickly. So that is the good news. When I look at the cast, it's like going up about a couple percent, you know, every week or so. So it's not quite the the takeoff that we saw with the
1: original Omicron. Right. None of these seem to have that competitive advantage over you know, BA4, BA5, which I guess BA5 now at this point. So um, so how about some of the other, um, so that talks about our prevention. Um, what about our treatments? Anything impacting those? We've got pebtilobumab, we've got remdesivir that we mentioned, Paxlovid, molnupiravir. Any p- changes to those?
2: Yeah, you still refuse to use the generic name for nematravir, ritonavir. I, I don't <laughs> understand why. You, you forced me I, to learn to pronounce it in <laughs> January.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, well, you notice when I type fun connect. Um, I do try to use the generics, uh, but yeah, I, uh, you know, for the ease of conversation, I, I do slip into the, the brand names, you know, they're not marketed products. So this is not a CE, um, <laughs> uh, um, there, there's no CE to go alone the webinars or the, uh, I'm sorry, with the uh, <laughs> podcast. So, but uh, you taught me, you did.
2: If, if any of our listeners have uh, reported bias, his name is Michael Gagneau. No. So uh, we're a little more fortunate on the therapeutic aspect. Uh, both of our oral antivirals, so nermatavir, and malnupiravir, both of those still retain activity against the circulating uh, variants that we see. And if you think back to their mechanism of action, it makes sense. They, they shouldn't knock on wood, change just because of the variants that we have uh, thus far. The monoclonal antibodies, those definitely do uh, get impacted depending on what is circulating. And fortunately, bebtilovimab uh, also retains activity against BA4, BA5. And I think they just released information that, yes, it still looks like in vitro, it retains activity against BA4.6 as well. Um, Remdesivir, same thing, uh, retains activity. So can't recall which monoclonal we talked about at the summer meeting, but we still have potentially four options to treat, nermatavir, tonavir, one of our monoclonals, this one is bebtilovimab, and remdesivir. Additionally, we have some retrospective real-world efficacy data with all of these agents, and uh, pertinent to this audience, we do have some data in our immunocompromised patients as well. I think the difficult part, and uh, Kathy, jump in and tell me how you interpret these, is that these are all retrospective. These are usually in patients who have been vaccinated as well. So it's hard to draw, I think, definitive conclusions. But if I'm going to do a 10,000-foot summary, it does seem that these agents still have benefit over not receiving therapy in terms of preventing hospitalization or preventing deaths or preventing some of these other severe complications. In the updated handout, we will have the citations for some of these, so our listeners can pull those as well. But I I think when it comes to these agents, it comes down to which do you choose for your patient. And remember that none of the... Sorry, remdesivir is FDA approved, but... Nermatrivir ritonavir, molnupiravir, and bebtilovimab, they still only have emergency use authorizations, So those have to be prescribed or used according to a package insert or according to the, the fact sheet. So you have to figure out you know, how old is the patient, how much do they weigh, how long has it been since symptom onset to determine which is the most appropriate then you can start weeding out based on maybe renal function, hepatic function, or drug interactions. ASHP online, they do have a wonderful toolkit for prescribing or ritonavir. I also want to throw a shout out for SIDP. They also have an oral antiviral toolkit on their website. And I like their flowchart just because if going down the algorithm, your patient meets exclusion criteria for one of the oral antivirals, they do point towards when a monoclonal or remdesivir possibly would be appropriate for that patient. Um, so I think that's a lot of the summary uh, of our agents. The, the good news or the the summary is that they still have activity against the currently circulating variants.
1: And as you said, it kind of makes sense if you think about the mutations that give the virus a competitive advantage is typically in the spike protein, which is the target for the monoclonal. Meanwhile, the antivirals, you know, the mechanism is a little more resistant to any kind of mutations. So far, um, there have been, you know, some spot reports of potential resistance, but fortunately nothing widespread at this point, but we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on it. That's a pretty good segue, Monica, into, you know, the, the idea that uh, pharmacists are able to prove Prescribe Paxilvid now, and I will not kick you off the podcast for recommending another organization's prescribing guide, but I will note that the ASHP one was specific to pharmacists who were in a position of prescribing Paxilvid. It wasn't necessarily a decision, decision tree for all the treatments that were available. It was specific to Paxilvid and, uh, I'm sorry, their natural were <laughs> specific to that one and, and, and when to refer a patient to another provider, you know, that assuming that in the position the pharmacist might be in, it's basically a yes, no, can I do this? Can I not do this? And if I can't do this, when do I refer it to someone else? But are we seeing, so at your institutions or in, uh, among your peer networks, are you seeing pharmacists prescribing? Are there any lessons learned? Are there anything that you're finding with interaction with patients, questions about paxlovid mouth or <laughs> Paxlovid rebound. I know there's a lot in this question, so I'm going to turn it over to both of you to just share your experiences. What's going on out there with Paxlovid prescribing?
2: Yeah. You never specified how long this podcast is because I think both Kathy and I can just spend <laughs> the rest of the time on, on this Hours. <laughs> Hours on
1: this. Okay. Well, how about a couple of provos? So we, we usually go, you know, 15 to 30 minutes or so, and <laughs> it's flexible. It depends on how long people's commutes are uh, or whenever they listen to the podcast, but yeah, share some pearls of wisdom.
2: Let me give some background, and then we can volley the, the questions back and forth between myself and Kathy. So historical perspective, on July 6th, the FDA modified the emergency use authorization to allow pharmacists to independently prescribe nirmatrelvir and ritonavir. In addition to meeting clinical qualification information for receipt of the medication, uh, the pharmacist needs to have access to renal, hepatic, and concomitant medication information in order to prescribe. Additionally, in late July or early August, ASHP could conducted a random survey. They sent it out to about 10,000 members asking about prescribing nermatavir ritonavir. 663 members responded. If you haven't looked at this, please do. It is a wealth of information. Just asking about, is your institution doing this? What are barriers? What are challenges? So I just want to highlight a couple of stats here. So at the time, you know, again, this was what, three, four months ago, approximately 65% of institutions were prescribing nirmatavir, ritonavir to patients, and 22% of organizations had pharmacists prescribing as well. In those with pharmacists prescribing, almost all of them had access to electronic health records for the renal hepatic and medication information, which makes sense when you think about ASHP's demographics, most of them are going to be institutional members and pharmacists. The vast majority of respondents, uh, more than 75%, said that they were not billing for pharmacist evaluation of patient eligibility, which underscores a major problem. And while pharmacists are able to prescribe, the emergency use authorization language nor any of the PrEP amendment language advocates or requires pharmacist reimbursement. Uh, so this lack of reimbursement was identified as the number one challenge to implementing pharmacists prescribing of Dermatvir or Tonavir. One more plug before I turn it over to Kathy. So I will say that there are several bills in various stages of introduction nationally that can support pharmacist reimbursement, such as HR 7213, Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act which I know ASHP has been trying to support as well. So if you're listening, please consider contacting your state congresspeople and encouraging them to support and pass this bill. Kathy, do you want to tackle some of the clinical? I can keep talking, but I don't want to drone on.
0: (laughs) That was a great summary. Yeah, I think really the main barrier is going to be the reimbursement issue. So we've also discussed implementing pharmacist prescribing. It's not for lack of not wanting it. like Everybody wants it. But at an institution where, you know, we can't bill for services, that is challenging not just for the pharmacist, but for the institution, right? So the institution wants us to do it, but if they can't get payment for it, we have to rethink that. So that's been a barrier for us. You know, the other parts of the the EUA that we're challenging are these parts about having the renal function and LFTs within a year. I mean, that's a major barrier, for community pharmacies, of course, who may not have access to electronic health records. What qualifies as good enough? And I remember we were on this, Mike and I were on this FDA call and we asked like, do you actually have to have labs brought in? And so the FDA, I remember the FDA was saying, you know, be creative. What does that actually mean? They can show, they can bring paperwork that shows their their last LFTs or their CMC or, you know, or if they have it on their smartphone. They can bring it in that way. I think that sounds great in concept, but from an equity perspective, it doesn't move the needle for us. I mean, the whole point of test to treat is to move this into places where access is limited. And if it's a place where access is limited, who's going to have a smartphone with their labs on it? And why is that different for pharmacists compared to the, as my friend calls it, the doc in a box NP or, you know, test to treat site at, uh, you know, these web-based things or, you know, these telehealth visits. How is that any different? So I think that's something that as a profession, we need to really have conversations about and how do we move the needle to really increase access for the people who need it. We've actually gotten creative ourselves. We're thinking about doing test-to-treat and buying clia waved handheld machines that we can do spot checks on creatinine and LFTs. But those are not cheap. I mean, each one of those test strips are probably $20, $30. And of course, if we can't reimburse for them, you know, how is that going to move
2: them? You know? Totally agree. The equity issue is a huge barrier because where we need it is where probably our pharmacists aren't embedded in an institution and therefore don't have access to those labs, as you mentioned. Mike, another question that you asked was regarding Paxlovid Mouth, and I will allow the brand name here because it, it sounds better. It's Cattier Paxlovid Mouth. And this term, if our listeners aren't familiar, is a term that's been coined for the dysquesia or taste disturbance experienced by patients. Going back to the one published study that we do have, the EPIC-HR, um, Randomized Controlled Double Blind Prospective Study, only 6% of patients receiving nermatravir reported dysquesia, but in actuality, uh, it seems... Much higher than this. I've had several colleagues. I've had many patients complain of this. Usually, patients report that it's a metallic taste. It's difficult to get rid of. I have heard that drinking Gatorade, maybe a specific flavor of Gatorade. Sorry for promoting a product, but multiple people have said this particular drink can potentially help with it. The good news is that the taste does go away after discontinuation, but it just might differ depending on, you know, is it a couple of days, a couple of hours, or is it longer term than than that?
1: Well, I just have to say, I'm glad we got you on a podcast saying this So that was, <laughs> yeah. that was well worth, yes, well worth the discussion, but go ahead with, with the rebuttal.
2: I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I, I learned English in preschool. <laughs> oh, well, I, I mean, I might be breaking down the fourth wall, but I have a piece of paper pulled up here and it's <laughs> Typed out correctly, so D Y S G U E S I A. I also was fourth place in the second grade spelling bee. So,
1: um. well, of course you were fourth, <laughs> fourth place. Like. Okay, so rebound. Rebound. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about rebound?
2: <laughs> Bringing it back. So again, I want to point out that rebound was seen in both norethisterone and placebo arms of EPIC HR. We briefly mentioned this during the summer meeting as well. And this is a phenomenon when the patient feels ill, they get diagnosed, they start to take the medication or the placebo, start feeling better, and then a couple of days later they start to feel ill again. Are they reinfected? You know, did we just prolong the, the course of the, the infection? So it's that second course of feeling sick or ill. We still don't know why this occurs. Some clinicians have suggested that maybe we're starting therapy too soon. We have all of these rapid uh, tests available for home, so patients are testing as soon as they're ill, and maybe we're starting therapy too early in that course. We know that we need to start within five days of symptoms, but maybe we should be waiting until day four or five to start nematviratonavir. Others have suggested that maybe we should be prescribing the course for 10 days, not five days. Maybe five days is too short of a time period. But I do want to caution that none of this has been studied. And again, this medication is not FDA approved. It has emergency use authorization. So we have to go by what is written in that fact sheet. We have to start therapy within five days of symptom onset, and uh, therapy is only for a period of five days. Um, So going beyond these parameters would be against the EUA. And, you know, I don't know what happens if you go against it. Are there investigations? Are there sanctions? But that's what we have to practice within. And then the last thing that I want to say, sorry, I'm on the roll. You started a monster. um, Is that (laughs) (laughs) We are still waiting for the Epic SR study. We do not have the full study. We do not have peer-reviewed publication. Uh, Epic SR is in our standard risk patients for a very brief period of time. Previous vaccination was allowed. That was included. If you were a high-risk patient and got vaccinated, you were considered standard risk. And initially, these patients were allowed in there. And we thought, yes, this is going to be real world data that we can use. They took away that eligibility criteria about halfway through, and we still don't have results. We only have top-line uh, company-provided information, so we don't know the impact, the benefit of nermetivir, in patients that are not considered high-risk, which, again, bringing it back to our immunocompromised patients, we know that immunocompromised are considered high-risk, but immunocompromised plus vaccine, does that put them in the standard risk category? How would this medication help them? So,
1: release those results. Right, or even even immune compromised plus, plus every child at this point. So if exactly. they have break through yeah. there, you know, so it's even a, a sub-subpopulation. Okay, so there was a lot there. There's a couple of things I do want to respond to. Um, so first of all, you redeem yourself for plugging another organization's resource by going into the survey, which was, uh, was actually, I was very heavily involved in that and the data analysis, but there was one other take-home from the survey results that I think was really interesting. We met with FDA and we kind of pushed FDA on some of these dis- discussions, you know, so do they have to actually have a lab value in their hand? Or could you reach out to their practitioner's office and say, hey, do you have lab value information for them? Do you have any reason to, to believe? You know, if you read the EUA fact sheet, a lot of it's written as should. Um and then, so one of the take homes from our survey was also about how are you identifying drug-drug interactions and how are you, how are you managing them? Because the, the fact sheet kind of hints that you should just refer the patient completely to their primary care provider. Well, we know not everyone has a primary care provider. Um, and we also know that through privileging and pre- credentialing programs and through other sorts of uh, collaborative practice agreements, pharmacists are able to manage some of these things on their own, You know, especially if it's something like a stat and you can just hold it for a few days. Um, and that's what we found in our survey is that most of these drug interactions are being managed independently by, the, by pharmacists. So there are some barriers presented by the, that fact sheet. But there's also ways uh, creatively to kind of get around them, recognizing what the FDA's intent is. So thank you for plugging that. Thank you for plugging the the, uh, legislation that we've been advocating on behalf of. We're getting close to the end of time. I do have one quick question to kind of tie it back into our immune-compromised patients. Now that there are updated boosters, we have immune-compromised patients probably coming back for boosters they may be getting additional doses of shelled. Is there anything new with the timing of these together or does it not matter?
0: Yeah, actually, this is a great question because we've had a couple of patients who have been a little miffed because they show up for their shelled and it's too soon since they got their booster. So the recommendation hasn't changed from when we first talked about this at the summer meeting. So whatever vaccine you got, you have to wait two weeks before you can get your Evusheld. But weirdly, after you get your Evusheld, you don't have to wait any time to get your booster. So it's a little bit, in a way it doesn't make sense, especially with a with a drug that has an 85-day half-life, but that's the recommendation. I think the thing to be very cautious about is because these are all the things we need in our toolkit, right? So immune-compromised patients are getting boosters, you're getting their redose of their Evusheld, which is now 300 milligrams of each every six months, doesn't matter what you got before. We have to really screen them carefully when they come in for their shield. When did you get your booster? And for us in California, all of the immunization data goes into our electronic health records through the California Immunization Registry. But these registries are really overloaded because of the load of patients coming into booster and that information may not push over. By the time they come in for your for their every shell dose, so you really have to ask, when was the last time you got your dose? And for health systems that are scheduling patients, that should be one of the screening questions that the scheduler asks the patient before they schedule. When was your last dose of vaccine? And to remind them not to get any dose between now and the time you come in for your vaccine if it's going to be within two weeks.
1: Awesome, thank you, and. Uh... I love talking to the two of you. I could do this all day, um, but you know, unless someone has a two-hour commute, they probably would like us to conclude. So I'm going to call it there. Uh, that's all the time we have for this podcast. I do want to thank Dr. Kathy Yang, Dr. Monica Mahoney, which I realized on the intro, Dr. Mahoney, that I did not state your institu- institution. You're at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. So sorry for failing to mention that.
0: I noticed that, Mike, but I didn't call you out on it. I should, probably should have.
1: Well, I, I'm being called out for all kinds of things on the <laughs> podcast, so why not? <laughs> yeah. But thank you for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 and the immune compromised population. If you haven't already, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources, especially relevant to this topic is our COVID-19 Resource Center, which we have not been updating as much. But as things come out, we have been uh, we have been posting and sharing. And there, as Dr. Mahoney mentioned, our Paxlovid survey information is there. The Paxlovid prescribing guide is there. Also, if you're attending the upcoming mid-year meeting in Las Vegas and you liked what you heard today, please come see the live version. Tickets are free, but I'll be joined uh, by Drs. Yang and Mahoney, along with Dr. Sarah Parsons, pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Children's Hospital of King's Daughter, as we take a further dive into considerations for preventing and treating COVID in the immune-compromised patients and new for this session, we'll be including pediatric patients. Uh, it's a subpopulation that treatments are different. You know, these are authorizations; that, uh, we can't really use them off-label, as uh, as Monica mentioned. So, what are the considerations for pediatric patients and uh, immune-compromised pediatric patients in particular? That session is from eleven thirty. A.M. to 1 P.M. on Monday, December 5th. You can check out ASHP's Midyear Clinical Meeting website for more information. And thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Doctors Mahoney and Yang, thank you so much for joining me, and we look forward to talking to you more in Vegas.
2: Thank you so much. See you in Midyear.
0: Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.